This is something that I, I hope I never have to do again. I've done it once, and I hated it, and now it was, uh, I had to do it again. Last Sunday afternoon, I had to umpire a baseball game, a little league baseball game. You know, um, there's just something about that that I was dreading. Like, I wasn't looking forward to it, and then, and I'm not even the behind-the-plate umpire. I was the field umpire. But as soon as I got there, I saw the behind-the-plate umpire, and it's, it's, he's really intense, like, he gave me a uniform. Like, he gave me a uniform. Like, that's crazy. I had his little jersey, little umpire jersey. I got the clicker. He gave me, like, he had hand signals, you know, like, I'm just out here to tell him, safer out, you know, but we had hand signals. It was, it was, it was off to a bad start, though, and I, I literally, I'm dreading it. I literally at one point said, I would much rather be in the dentist chair than right here. Like, I'm not even kidding. Uh, it was first inning. I'm, uh, I'm kind of out there. There's a guy in first, and he's stealing. He starts stealing um, second base. And uh, he slides. The catcher throws the ball. The, sec- the shortstop puts the tag on it. And I call him. I go, you're out, you know. And at once, just automatically, he turns around, and he looks at me. He's like, what? Like, he's, I'm totally safe. You know, he's like sitting on the bag. Not just his foot was on it, but he was sitting on it. And, but, you know, I'm like, I, I don't know. You looked out to me. See, the, the thing is, is that um, umpiring should be very objective. It's like, it's a strike or it's not. It's over the plate, you know, knees to the letters or it's not. Um, you're either on the base or, you know, you're out. Like, it should be very objective, but yet it's so subjective. You know, the kid is sliding to second. I'm looking at him, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if you're out or safe. The throw was there. The tag was there. I called him out. It probably didn't, like, help matters at all that my son was catcher, and he was the one that threw the ball. I don't know. Call me biased or whatever, but it was, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to tell. And then a little bit later, you know, this guy, you know, hits a ball to shortstop. He's running it out. And I think he, he probably, I don't know, he might have been safe. I don't know, but I called him out again. And uh, I heard that same kid in the dugout, what? You know? And I, here's what I wanted to say. I wanted to say, like, listen, if you don't like my calls, run faster. Hit the ball further. Hit it out of the infield, right? Don't blame me that you can't hit it out of the infield. I was taking it personally, but it was a terrible game. I hated every minute. I couldn't wait till it was over. The last, you know, out, I just walked off the field, took off that jersey, (laughs) put it in my car. I was done. I hope I never have to do that. Here's the thing. Umpiring is not my skill set. Right? There's things in life that I'm not good at. I am not good at umpiring. I'm not a good investigator. I'm not a good judge. Like, those things are not, I'm not like about that. I don't like black and white. I'm much more gray, you know, which isn't good for an umpire. Eh, he might have been safe. He might be out. I don't know. I can't tell. But that's me. I'm, I'm much more into reconciliation and things like that than this black and white, you're out or you're safe. Um, I bring that. Uh, because today in our passage, we are uh, confronted with David again. We've been studying David's life and looking out after, uh, to be a person after God's own heart. And today, David is judge. He's, he's the umpire. He's calling the game. A story is presented to him, and he's going to call him out, or he's going to call him safe. Yet, it's not so uh, easy, right? Being a judge, is, it's easy. It's like you broke the law or you didn't break the law. But here, David gets a story, and it gets twisted and uh, gets complicated. Let me give you some background. We're in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Uh, Chapter 11, Pastor Burke 
taught last week, it's the whole story of David and Bathsheba. David fell into some sin. Right up till this point, he's done a pretty good job. He's been a good person that we want to model our lives after. We've seen a lot of good things with David. We'd say, yes, be like David, right? But then you get to a situation like last week, chapter 11, where he is in an affair. He tries to cover it up because she's pregnant. He ends up killing her husband and some others that died with him. And then after the time of mourning, he takes Bathsheba to be his wife, uh, third wife. We look at that, and we're not telling people, be like David. We're saying, be the opposite. Don't do that. But last week, we see a a story that didn't go so well, and as we turn the page into chapter 12, it picks up right where that story left off. Chapter uh, chapter 11 had probably the, the timeline, and that is about a year, right? This baby has been born by this time, so at least nine months, maybe longer, right around that timeline. But now we see David being confronted, being confronted for the sin that he had done. Because we finished chapter 11 with these haunting words that say, what David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. God did not approve. Today we're going to look at what it looks like to have unconfessed sin in your life. David had unconfessed sin for a year. What does it look like? What does that do? And then how are we to respond? If you've had some unconfessed sin, how do you respond and what happens? That's what we'll be looking at today. So we'll see kind of the main point as in our pursuit of God, as we are trying to pursue God with all of our hearts, we need to be willing to confront, confess, and be contrite in order to defeat sin. Okay, so in order to defeat sin, confront, confess, and be contrite. What that means is we've got to aggressively attack sin. David was passive, and we see what had happened. So let's uh, start this. We'll start in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. When we see this section of Scripture, here's what we see. Without confrontation, sin will consume us. Okay, without confronting the sin, it will continue to consume us. David had had this unconfessed sin for all this time, and we wonder what has been happening in his life. In other words, like when we sin and we don't confess it, does it just sit there, lying dormant? Does it fade and dissolve away? Just give it some time and it goes away. Or is there something else happening? Last week, Pastor Burke talked about uh, comparing sin to cancer. Well, that's a good analogy. It's like once cancer enters the body, it doesn't lie dormant. It doesn't just sit there. It's aggressively seeking to destroy from the inside. The Bible has another analogy, and it says in Second uh, or First Peter chapter two and Romans chapter seven, it talks about sin that's like waging war inside of you. This, this, this sin that is there is, is like an army that is going to defeat you. And each and every day, as you leave it unconfessed, that army gets bigger and stronger. And it just wages war on your heart and on your mind and on your conscience, on your will, on all these different areas of your life. It is fighting. So make no mistake that it just simply disappears. It is at war with you. In Psalm 32, that David wrote in reflection to this, he wrote Psalm 32 and he wrote Psalm 51. We'll read both of those a little later. But he describes this 
time of unconfessed sin. He said it was, it was just this, this horrible time where he kept silent. He didn't confess. He says, my bones were wasting away. Just felt my bones like just breaking apart. He said, for night and day your hand was heavy on me. My strength was zapped as in the heat of summer. You ever been in a humid place? You're walking around and you just feel like there's so much weight on you. You feel like you're carrying this wet blanket on you. That's how David responded to this. That's what he said it was like that. So what happens when we have sin that's unconfessed? It's, it's waging war in our lives. Another thing is that we're just separated from God. That when we have sin in our life, we're just separated. There's this, this break in communion with Him. So we don't want this to stay there. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to be uh, distant from God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, just so simply, he just said, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone, desperately alone. You're broken off in this communion. You have a third thing, that it's your heart is hardened. Your heart just becomes hardened over time. It just gets used to the sin, and sin working its way in your heart just, just keeps it hard. In Romans 2, it just talks about this. You know what? The reason why you didn't repent is because this hardness of heart, this unrepentant heart, and it's not going well for you. So sin needs to be confessed. We see right here at the beginning, it's not good for us. It's not good for us to keep the sin in our hearts. We have to do something with it. And so at the proper time, God sent Nathan. So we open up this chapter 12, the first words there, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet that he brought to David. He didn't just show up there on accident. He didn't just say, I had a hunch something's going on. No, the Lord sent him. Here's what it says. Let's read the first few verses. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. He's going to give him a story. He's going to say, David, here's a situation in your kingdom. I need you to weigh in on this. You being the king, you're also a judge. So I'd like to hear your opinion on this. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared its food. It drank from its cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. See this? It's like a pet. This little lamb is a pet, right? It grew up with his kids. It shared its food. It drank from his cup. I think that's too far. <laughs> I have a dog. Love that dog, but I would not let it drink from my own cup, right? But you see the relationship here. It's this tender relationship. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Oh, David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. This man must die for that. He must pay the, lamb, the man back for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity and then David says to Nathan, you are the man. You are the man. The rich man, that's you. 
the man who had everything, that's you. But you went and you stole a lamb from this man. You stole it from him. David uh, continued to listen to Nathan the prophet, and, and uh, God said some hard things. Listen to what God says to him. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. You took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give it to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Sometimes we say, I wish God would speak more, <laughs> but not like this. This is hard. He says, I, I gave you everything you wanted. You didn't lack anything. I gave you protection. I gave you a home. I gave you wives. I gave you a kingdom. And if you wanted more, I'd have done it. You just have to ask. But you despised me. David despised God by his actions. And his actions would carry consequences. And why does God send Nathan? Why does God do this? Why did he even bother? Well, one, nothing is hidden. Do you hear all the details in there? God saw it all. There's no hiding from God. He tried to hide it from everybody else in his kingdom. He tried to cover it up, and he thought he got away with it. Bathsheba comes to her house. She delivers a little bit early, but that's okay. Nobody thought too much of it. He thought he got away with it. But what David did in darkness, God saw clearly. So one, he sees everything. But there's something more important. Why did God send Nathan to confront him? Because God is seeking to bring him back into life. He's bringing him back into relationship. He's saying, I saw what is going on in your heart, and I see that it's killing you. And left to your own, you're not going to confess, are you? I've given you a year. You haven't done it. So I'm going to pull you in. And I'm doing this because I love you. I don't want to see you struggling like that. I don't want you to experience this heavy weight on you. I want you to experience freedom. And bringing you into the light. Back in the Old Testament, they had prophets that would do this, that would speak the words of God. But Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send, not prophets, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into your lives. And the Holy Spirit's going to be the one that's going to convict your heart of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to be the one that's going to be speaking to you. So today, we may not have prophets at the door, but we have the Holy Spirit, the one who is speaking to you, who is knocking on the doors of your heart, saying, come, confront the sin and find victory. 
Because without confrontation, sin will consume. It's not lying dormant. It's waging war. We've got to be aggressive. Second thing we see as we keep moving forward is without confession, without confession, sin will keep us in contempt. It will keep us in contempt. Confession is bringing this sin to the Lord, admitting what you have done. And David does this. In verse 13, David heard all that Nathan said, and now he speaks, and he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. Very simple. Six words. I have sinned against the Lord. What took him so long? What took him so long? Why did it take a year to say that? It's the power of sin, isn't it? But let me tell you, because he spoke these words, this is the difference between him and Saul. This is what makes him a man after God's own heart. Because Saul sinned all the time. But you know, when you read the story of Saul in here, you never see those words from him. You never see him say, I have sinned against the Lord. He made excuses. And David could have made excuses too. He just said, hey, it's not my fault. She threw herself at me, right? He just said, hey, Nathan, if you only knew what it's like in my home, all right? My wife is she's so distant and all that. It's hard, or he could have said, hey, Nathan, have you seen the other rulers of Israel? Like, look at Samson. He was a mess, right? He did all kinds of things. He did stuff worse than I did. He could have made excuses, but he didn't. He heard the word of the Lord, and he said, I have sinned against God. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. But it's hard. Pride gets in the way, Right? Pride gets in the way, and pride is the one thing that keeps us off our humble knees. And it's just saying, keep standing, keep moving forward. But he had to come to grips with that. What helped is what he understood what this meant. It wasn't just some just mistake or whatever, but it was holding God in contempt. What does contempt mean? It's a word that we use in the court of law, right, more than we use in, in, in the church. It's not so much a church word. It's a law word. And I always hear it when I watch TV, right, saying, you're in contempt of court. You know, behave. Here's what it says in verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Oof. He's taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. This contempt is feeling like someone is beneath them, that they're too low. We disdain them. We hate them. We scorn them. And that's what David heard, that you were holding God in contempt. You were pushing him down. Nathan says to David, you are in contempt. You're in contempt of God. Listen, I've never been in contempt of a court. I've never been in that situation, but I know that I would never want that. But, but listen, why are we so afraid of being in contempt to judge Judy and we're not afraid of being in contempt with God? We don't want to be in contempt with court and we mind ourselves, but our sin throws us in contempt. Our, our sin is contemptible to God. And yet we sit there and say, yeah, it's fine. It's just some mistakes. No big deal. 
It'll fade away. It'll go away. This tells us it doesn't go away. That God sees the sin and he's angered by it. This is a big deal. And he says it carries consequences. We see the consequences that play out in the rest of this chapter. We see it through the rest of this book. There are so many consequences. One, the baby that was born is going to die. Seven days later, that baby died of sickness. Can you imagine the agony that he had? He says, you stole Uriah's wife, your wives will be stolen from you. You put uh, Uriah to the sword, so the sword will never leave your house. If David just knew what his actions would do, if he knew what his sin would do, if Nathan came to him and said, hey, I see you looking at Bathsheba, let me just tell you what's going to happen. If you do anything, that son will die. Your firstborn is going to be murdered. Your, one of your daughters is going to be treated um, very poorly by one of your other brothers or her other brothers. One of your, another one of your sons is going to move you out of, out of the city. He's going to rise up in rebellion against you, and he's going to be eventually killed. Three of your sons are going to die. One of your daughters is going to have emotional distress for the rest of her life. Uriah is going to die, several men with him. If Nathan told him all that, do you think he'd do it? I don't, I don't know. I would hope not. And listen, I don't know where you're all at. I don't know what's going on in all of your hearts. I don't know if there's sin that has kind of been harboring in your heart. I don't know if you're thinking about something, whether it's an affair or embezzlement or, or some shady business deal that's illegal or immoral. I don't know what you guys are thinking of. And I pray that this is, doesn't relate to any of you. But I know our human hearts, and I know we're prone towards evil and wickedness. But stop. Please stop and look at the consequences. Not only does it hurt family members and, and people all around us, but we're holding God in contempt. I don't want to do that. Let's be quick to confess our sin the sin so that we are not in contempt of God and His love. Without confrontation, sin will consume us. Without confession, it will keep us in contempt. But without contrition, sin will never be cleansed and conquered. Without contrition, sin will never be cleansed or conquered. What does contrition mean? Kind of a vocabulary. Uh, Contempt was the, a courtroom word. Contrition is we're back in the church. It's a church word now. It means feeling this, this awful weight of being remorseful and penitent. It's, it's being repentant. In Latin, the word is, means it's ground into pieces. Think of like ground beef and what it goes through. That's repentant. That's contrition. And so David's heart now turns to contrition. And we're, we're going to leave 2 Samuel, and I want you to flip over to uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, he wrote in a response to this. It says that he wrote this after this visit with Nathan. And we're going to spend a little time in here looking at this. But I want you to see this, this heart of contrition. He's not just like, hey, I'm sorry if it offended you. I'm sorry if you were hurt by this. I won't do it again. It was much deeper than that. Listen to his words. He says in Psalm 51, verse 1, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, not your unending anger, but your love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David was the one who had no compassion, who had no pity for his neighbor, but he's calling on God's great compassion to blot out his transgressions. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. He's saying you are a fair judge and I am guilty. I, for sure, I'm guilty. I've been guilty since before I was born. I definitely have sinned against you, but I'm calling on your mercy to be cleansed. His heart broken before the Lord and what he has done and what it has caused. Verse 7 continues. It says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You see this confession, what it brings when we confess we are cleansed. It says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Those bones that were becoming brittle, he's saying, now strengthen them and let them rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit, a willing spirit to sustain me. Before, when sin was unconfessed, he was struggling. He felt the weight of God upon him. He felt that pressure. It was breaking him. And now he confesses. He repents, and he's clean. He's cleaned up. His bones and his body are restored. His sins are removed. He has a clean, pure heart. God's presence is moving him forward and sustaining him. He's with him. His joy is restored to salvation. Do you see the change? Do you see the change that when we confess what God brings? God loves a contrite spirit. A humble and contrite heart is what he loves. If you skip to verse 16, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. If that's all it was, that you just wanted me to bring another lamb or something, I would do it if that's what it took. He says, but you don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, you will not despise. Do you see what God wants? Do you see what He's, he's desiring in our lives? A broken and a contrite heart. That is where we find forgiveness. I think it's, it's really important that we understand this, that we understand it clearly. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, which we read earlier, do you remember what he said when Nathan was talking to David? He said, you despised me. David, you despised me in the way you acted and what you did. But what David wrote here is that a contrite heart 
God will not despise. It's the same word. You despise me in your sin, but I'm not going to despise you when you come to me asking for forgiveness. You're going to only find love. You will find compassion. You will find mercy. You will find grace. And that's a beautiful place. That is where I want us. I don't want us over here stuck in the sin, harboring the sin, just saying, oh, it'll go away. We'll figure it out. That place will destroy you. It'll destroy people with you. You're despising the Lord. You're keeping Him in contempt. How I'd so much rather see you confess, seeing you broken, and seeing you come to this place of mercy and forgiveness and unending love. He says, I got great things for you. I have great joys for you to see. I have salvation. It all comes through the broken and contrite heart. Hearts that need to be humbled. I started this sermon talking about umpiring. Now hard it is. It's so hard for me. Because I am not a good judge. I'm just not good at it. But we see David kind of as the umpire, if you will. He sees this this case, and he calls the guy out. He's like, you're out. You deserve to die. But God overrules him. He overrules him. He says, you're right. David, you did a bad thing. You deserve to die. But you remember the next words out of Nathan's mouth? You're not going to die. God overrules him. Kind of that instant replay. Nope. You're safe. But think of those words. This man deserves to die. That's what David said in his palace in Jerusalem. Now, fast forward with me. Who was standing in Jerusalem many years later? Maybe, and this is my speculation, it might be in that same room, it might be in that same palace, but David's long gone. Now it's a guy named Pilate who's standing there. He's the one. He's the judge. And he has before him Jesus who has been beaten and bruised and is standing. And Pilate looks at him, and this is basically what he says, you do not deserve to die. You're innocent. You are innocent for all these charges, but you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die for David's sin because he, it was past. His punishment was passed, and it was passed, and it was passed, and it was passed, and it was put on Jesus. So you're innocent, Jesus, but you deserve to die. And then all of our sin, all of our sin since then, that when we confess our sin, God takes it and puts it backwards and puts it on Jesus. He says, you can be forgiven, and you can be clean, and you can be white as snow. Why? Because Jesus was innocent, and he took it. He took it for you. We deserve to die. We're guilty just like David. For all these crimes, for all these ways that we held God in contempt, we are guilty. We deserve to die. But because of God's grace and His love, amen, you have the forgiveness. You have the holiness. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to close with this Psalm 32. It's the first part of it. And as I read, the worship team can come up if they'd like. But 
listen to these words. These words of forgiveness that he experiences. It starts with this. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Hmm. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as the summer's heat. Some of you may feel that way. But he says, then I acknowledge my sin to you. I acknowledge it. I confessed it. I spoke it. I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sin. Amen. You took away the guilt. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you. At a time that you may be found. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I'm praying that this place would be filled with joyful shouts of deliverance. Whether you have already known Christ and you have been forgiven, but you've just you've walked into some trouble, you've done some things that you regret that you shouldn't have done, that when you confess those, bring those to the Lord, that you will find these joyful shouts of deliverance. Or maybe it's you've never received Jesus Christ. You've never asked Him. You've never prayed for forgiveness. You've, you've maybe heard some things here and there, but you've never come before the Lord and said, please forgive me. I am, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you. I've held you in contempt. My heart is that God, the Holy Spirit, speaks into your heart and opens the door and you confess and you receive new life. You receive salvation. You receive forgiveness. Today, there's joyful shouts of deliverance. It's right there. It's ready for all of us. May we receive.